For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today's guest is an actor, stuntman, martial artist, and number one New York Times best-selling author, Wesley Chu. Welcome to Epic What's Realms. Up? Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm not, I'm not, not going to lie. I'm a little nervous right now. Why? Why? It's, There's it's, no reason to be nervous. No reason to be it's, nervous. It's, it's, the live, it's the live facet of, of, the, of this podcast. It's, it's what makes it fun. It's what makes it fun. Although you don't really have to worry about the live aspect of the podcast. Maybe until the, the live stream Q&A where the people that are live ask you some questions. So, so yeah. And we'll add it in post. Yeah, yeah. We'll edit it in post. Wait, can we edit in post? I can edit it in post. I can okay, definitely great. do that. Because, because one thing I realized ever since I was a kid is like I say a lot of dumb things. Like I, I, have, one of those, I have a very poor filter between my brain and my mouth. So it's usually not a big deal because I don't ever do anything live even when i was doing like acting it was it was rarely ever live so this this is a different kind this is a raw thing for me now well hopefully hopefully it's a good experience for you and yeah that that's something that i always thought was kind of interesting was the fact that it's live and you know in the moment yeah it's live but editing it in the in the background afterward and edit it in post is right super simple because i i do i edit ums i edit ahs unless they're like super needed for the show uh, I usually try and edit those out. Like just now, I said, "Ah, oh, I'll probably edit that ah oh, out." Except for would you really? That's a very natural thing, though, isn't it? It is, but if it's not, I do that too, no, if it's, now, if it's now over, I'm self conscious. Now, if it's if I if it's overbearing, <laughs> if it's like a lot, um, right? That's usually when I'll do it. If it's part of a natural conversation, I don't necessarily do that. So, but yeah, okay. as far as if you say something, I've had I've had people come on and say, "Yeah, I didn't like X Y Z cover artist of my book," and I'm just making something up. And then after like, oh, could you, I didn't really mean to say that. Can you go back and cut that? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can cut that out. Or when somebody dropped the name of a book that they weren't supposed to drop the name of yet, uh, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, we could totally edit that all out. Okay. Fantastic. No because, okay. So right. speaking this... of, you know, you said you did acting and I listed this long list of things that you've accomplished. How did all these come about? Did they all like manifest as you were growing up? Like I'm going to be an actor and do martial arts and, you know, stuff. Okay, so well, I mean, it all started with like one thing. Like, I, I mean, literally, if I look back in time, you know, there there are catalysts for each thing that kind of like led me to here. But um, I'm gonna go all the way back back to the '80s okay. when I was like yeah. four years old. We just moved to this country. I lived in Nebraska at the time, and um, we just, you know, if you if you, anybody who knows 1980s Nebraska, it's you know very flat, very white, very Midwest. 
Yeah. And uh, there weren't that many Asians in, in the States. So um, like, five, like, like I always joke that it was like there's like four, eight, like five Asians in the whole state and like four were in my family. So I didn't have a deep connection with like my my roots, my culture, my people. Yeah. And um, when I was five, six years old, I discovered something called Samurai Sunday, which is like really badly dubbed Kung Fu movies. Yeah. That, you know, that they played on Sundays. And that's, I kind of fell in love with that because it was like my connection to my home country. Okay. And it also gave me a really skewed view of what, you know, Asian people are like. Right. Yeah. But we all flew and punched through walls. So, like, from that point on, I always loved martial arts. And, um, you know, at the earliest opportunity, I, you know, I signed up for, you know, to, to learn Kung Fu. I read, I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. So, my, so I want, but I could never find, like, you know, kung fu books because that's what i loved right so it, it all kind of like came together that way as i grew up and i, I was you know, by the time i was in my 20s i was a huge martial artist i was trained 20 hours a week you know i was like on, on a lineage and it was you know one of the one of those things and um one day there was an independent filmmaker who came into the school looking for like basically extras stuntmen who can like basically you know run 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 throw two you know throw two punches and like and die okay so he um he saw me work out, and then he liked my look, and he basically casted me with a speaking role, and that's kind of kind of how I got started, you know. But okay. at that time, I lived in Chicago, and anybody who knows Chicago's like you know acting industry, it's all like it's a lot of commercial work, a lot of industrials, no you know some shows, but no no real like you know live TV or film industry. Right. So um. I became an actor, you know, did some stunt work, and but it was primarily commercial work, small stuff here and there, and that's how I got into acting. Okay, nice. How did that bridge between doing acting and then eventually go into writing and you know author work and stuff like that? So they they, they were simultaneous. I think I think okay. to be honest, part of the catalyst for both was that I hated my day job. I just could not stand my day job. And at one point, you know, like I said, I was working my day job. I'd go to the gym for like an hour to work out. And then I would train till like 10 p.m. every single night. And I think I was like 27, 28. One day I woke up and I was like, man, my life sucks. You know, I got no friends. I'm hanging out with these old dudes all day, all week. I'm hanging out with these like 60 year old dudes doing Tai Chi and stuff. What am I doing? And then I thought back to like, what? I wanted to do when I was young. When I was young, when I was 16 years old, you know, my dad was an English professor. The reason why we moved to Nebraska was because he was getting his PhD in English. Okay. And so I went, when I was 16, I went to my dad and I was like, dad, I'm going to be an English major just like you. You know, but I'm going to write books instead. And he was like, no, son, your life will suffer. So, you know, and because, he, you know, he was the one that's paying for college, I did not become an English major. I became a computer science major. And then, you know, did a whole corporate route and yada, yada, yada. I hate my job. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so like fast forward 10 years, I'm working now. And I just thought about like what made me happy. What did I want to do? And as much as I love martial arts, it was kind of like, a you know, what are you going to do with it? I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be one of these 60 year old guys who, who's really, really good at martial arts. But doing the exact same thing over and over again. Yeah. So I, I just thought, no, I needed to make a change. I wanted to follow my dreams. And then that was when I, I literally just like quit martial arts. One day I like fell off the face of that school. Um, 
never went back. And I started working on my first book. And the first book was a low fantasy. It was a really, really badly written book, which I, you know, I finished it. It was a 180,000 word atrocity. It didn't go anywhere. And after a year, I, you know, got drunk for a week and uh, started working on the next book, which became my debut novel, The Lives of Tao. Okay. When you were doing the other stuff before, did the, the actor stuntman martial artist combo, did that help out with any of your, like, writing works? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so I'm known for my action scenes, you know? Like, if there are two things that, you know, Wesley Chu as the author is known for, I'm known for action scenes and, like, humor. You know, and the humor comes from the acting. Like if it's you know, there's, like you don't see that much humor in speculative fiction, right? And part of it's because it's hard, but another part of it, and this is just my theory, but um, is that to really get humor right, you really have to understand like human nature. You have to understand cadence. You have to understand timing, and that's something I learned as an actor. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, when it comes to action, that's something that I had to kind of modulate. I mean, early, if, you, if you read my early drafts. I would have like five page fight scenes. It, it was like complex. It was intricate. I, I was doing like John Wick. I was yeah. writing John Wick, you know, every little John detail for, for 15 minutes. Because when you do stunt work and you do fight choreography, um, timing, movement, placement matters. And if you don't, somebody's going to get punched. Um, one of my very first acting gigs was um, like, I remember I, I'm doing this gig, I'm fighting like three guys, and it's like 3 a.m. because, you know, when you shoot in the middle of the night, everything's cheaper yeah so so we're shooting in the middle of the night and like it was just one of those things where like when you throw i was throwing a right elbow and we did like 10 takes perfectly fine and then on the martini shot you know the very last take just just, just to make sure everything's fine the guy's tired i'm tired i throw my right elbow and the guy instead of turning left he kind of leans forward Ooh. and i just cut his head open so <laughs> that was my first lesson about that and like you know it's it's one of those things you just got to get it right. So when I was writing it at first, I thought, okay, I'm, I, I I was proud that I was writing these scenes that I could literally reenact. And the problem with that, from a, from a pro standpoint, is that you know it's boring. My my, my wife was you know, read one of those early drafts, and she was like, "Wes, man, you're just mentally masturbating at this point, you know, about these fight scenes." And 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 she was right because, and especially when it comes to pros, um. Action has to do a lot of heavy lifting to be effective. You know, not only should it be exciting, it should also move the plot along. Yeah. It should do character development. It should do world building. It should tell you so many things, not just about the people fighting, but also about about like, you know, what the consequences of that action, how how that just kind of pushes the characters into a certain space. And if a character coming out of a fight is exactly the same as he was before he got into the fight, then you don't even need the fight scene. So, I mean, so a good action scene should do a lot of heavy lifting. Right. And that's something that I had to learn along the ways because, you know, it's one thing to be just like have cool scenes, but that's also, that tends to be a little flat. Yeah. It's another thing to really have it fully fleshed out. So that by the time a reader who doesn't even like action scenes could be like, whoa, you know, that, that got, that got my heart pumping. That got me racing. And now I want to see what happens next. Yeah. And a lot of people do, they just, they'll just throw a fight scene in for no reason other than to throw a fight scene in and you're just. Why? Fight scenes are fight scenes are fun. Well, look, yeah, like like there are people who love sex scenes, okay? Right. And 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 my my point has always been a good fight scene is like a good sex scene. 
you know, they fulfill the same, you know, the same purpose on many levels, just, you know, in a, in a different way, yeah. you know, I used to teach a workshop that, that, that I call them, um, a fight scene is a conversation with fists. <laughs> That's a great name. So, well, let's talk a little bit. We're talking about fighting. We you talked about martial arts and, and that. Um, how does how does something like because you're you do kung fu right mostly? Yes. How does that? How I is did. that in reality versus <laughs> what we see? Because you mentioned you know you used to watch the shows that had that. Yeah. What is the big like reality versus? what pop culture shows us when it comes to Kung Fu and that style of mar or any martial arts for that matter. So, I mean, the reality is like an actual fight is the movements are always small. The movements you keep in front of you um, and the movements tend to be boring. I mean, a, a good example is if you see like, um, like if you ever watch fencing, okay. Like other than saber, fencing is just a lot of like feeling out in front of you. And that's what Chinese street sword is. It's you're feeling the other you're feeling the other opponent, you look for an opening, and then when one come when it come when one comes in, you kind of slide into it. You're not hacking, you're not slashing. It's it's always very small movements, and you want to keep the weapons in front of you. Okay, and that's the case with a lot of actual like sparring and fighting. You know, it's it's not flashy. It's not you know. Right. I mean, yeah, you can have big jump kicks and everything, but you have to kind of like set everything up. And the reason why, like, if you look at Kung Fu forms, the reason why they're so flashy sometimes is because it's exaggerated movements. Because if you can do the exaggerated movement, you can do it effectively, a smaller movement while you, when you actually fight. Okay. You know, and, and part of those forms not only teach you the movement, it teaches you, it helps, it trains your flexibility, your strength, and all these other aspects that they stack on top of it. Okay. And that's also, let's, let's just be fairly honest. Um, back in the day, Kung Fu schools are just like any business. And when you have the flash, that's just, that's just marketing. Right. Got to sell it. You got to sell it. Yeah. Well, on that note, because I, I, I had read somewhere that you did some work with a rope dart. Yes, that's my specialty. And I think that it looks so cool. It looks really awesome. And displays, people that do displays with them is so fascinating. For those that don't know, you've got a rope and then you've got it's not always a dart at the end, right? Sometimes it's like a, a weighted ball or something as well. Well, it's, right? it's a spearhead. It's usually a spearhead. Uh, sometimes it's in a, like a weighted ball. It's called a meteor hammer. Yeah. So how is that, you know, again, it looks great. What about real world applications? You know, if, if something happens, like, is that a real world application or is it mostly just muscle training, hand-eye coordination and, and stuff like that? Look. There's probably some real world applications for the rope dart, but honestly, not really. I I picked it because it was cool. I picked it, it because cool. it was rare and it was a very technical weapon. Um, I mean, a more realistic thing would be like, say, the whip chain. The whip chain is, you know, about it's a five foot rope with with a chained a chained links that are kind of like with sharp edges. Okay, and the, it's not realistic now, but like one of the things that you know that I focus on is like if i ever get into a real fight and it's been like 20 years since i've been in a real fight but like um it's it's like being able to use like pull your belt out yeah. you know i i can effectively fight with it with a belt and it's not hard but it's also more than just whipping somebody with it you know right. you gotta it's about timing it's about distance because you're not hitting them with just the whole belt you're hitting them with the ends of the, the end belt of it, yeah 
Right. So there, there's some training and timing and just kind of getting knowing what you're doing in, involved with when you try to use one of those weapons. But realistically, unless you're fighting somebody who knows what they're doing, none of these fights last more than one or two hits. Yeah, for sure. Let's go back to your first novel. You mentioned it. Okay. I was like, I had these things <laughs> that popped in my head. It's like, I, well, there's some martial arts questions I want that I just think you would have awesome answers to. Um, back to your first novel. You said you, you, that was your, you know, after you did the other one, you came up with this, you started writing it. How did that really come to be uh, as far as uh, getting published? Did you have to like shop it around or did you just know somebody kind of, how did that come about and how did you get your foot in the door with that book? So the so I finished the first draft of the Lies of Tao in 2007, um, and then I trunked it for three years because I was I was raiding World of Warcraft. I was a raid leader, yeah, you know, yeah. as you do, yeah, as yeah. you do. <laughs> and then again, back back to the whole like, what am I doing with my life thing? You know, three years yeah. later, my 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 my, um, my my dude was like decked decked in decked in like epic loots. But like, I was like, what am I doing with myself? So I know I went back to the what did I want to do with my life and I thought about the book and I, I polished it up I rewrote it and then uh, I entered it into the Angry Robot Books open submission of 2013 or is it 2012 2012 okay. so in the month of April anyone can submit to them and you know they they were a very reputable small press in the UK and they received 995 submissions for that and out of those 995 they requested you know 65 partials 25 folds and out of those five people got book deals and i was one of those five so it's it's basically the hardest way you can get published yeah i mean going going that route <laughs> is actually worse than like going through the slush pile <laughs> but, but but no but it worked it worked and i got my book deal and because of that book deal i got my agent and since then you know we've been off to the races yeah what about bouncing between different publishers, right? Because you know, obviously, you've got the your current stuff is coming out with Del Rey, right, or Penguin, correct? One of, correct. One of those, two. yeah. And how do you go from one to the other? Does your agent just say like, "We're going to shop your book here"? Is it over here, or because they're like maybe they're a little thematically different? I, I think I mean, so. Everything's by contracts, you know. I, I signed a two book deal with Angry Robot Books back in 2012, and then you know it was a that was a very successful book for them so they wanted me for three for one more book to finish the series which i did and then they wanted me for three more books which i which i signed a contract for which became the io books and at the time you know right when you're you know no matter how successful you are in a small press you know at the end of the day that just that's still a small press right and there there are many advantages with being part of a small press you come out you're they are very nimble they can publish you quickly um they just they, they can do a lot of things in a way that a larger press can't maneuver a, a, around the problem though is they are small press which means your advances are are lower and uh you know they just don't have the they don't have the marketing budget to really push you out you know they can launch you but they can't really like you know hit you to a very high level right so they go so uh, far i mean look, look, the lives of talented extraordinary like, really punched above its weight you know, and to be honest, Angry Robot Books did punch above their weight also. So, but, you know, upon finishing my Tao and IO books, I wanted to go to a, a big five. And that, you know, that became Tora, which published my Time Salvager books. Mm -hmm. And then again, everything's by contract. So I finished my contract with, with Tor. And then um, I had some tie-in opportunities fall into my lap, which is the, 
the Cassandra Clare books, the, the, all those Tursa series with Cassie for their Shadowhunter series. Yeah. And then with the Walking Dead book with uh, Robert Kirkman's, um, he, he, Robert Kirkman asked me to write a Walking Dead book for Asia. And those were all published by Simon and Schuster. So that's just kind of how that happened. Yeah. And then from that point on, you know, after doing three tie-in books, I was like, okay, I am now ready to do my own thing again. And that became the, the Art of Prophecy. Okay. When you were publishing those, that first series of books, did you have a goal in mind for that story? Like, was there like, I need to tell this story. I need to represent this thing. I need to get this emotion out of people when you were writing that. Or was it just like, I want to write a story and I want to tell a good story. Oh, the lives of Tao? Yeah. Oh, so the... So the lives of Tao is kind of like, so the idea for the lives of Tao came from my alarm clock. We're like, like, because I'd, I'd wake up early in the morning to go work out and it used to like, it's like that same alarm clock everybody else in the world had yeah. back, back in, the, yeah. back in the, like the nineties, you know, yeah. and like I, just went, I had a lot of lucid dreams. I think, I think at the time I might've been on Chantix to quit smoking. Okay. <laughs> when you're on Chantix, you had these really crazy dreams. So, um, yeah, so I just, I just had a dream about like this voice in my head being my life coach, you know, kind of like because I was going through this time period where like I don't like what I'm doing with my life. I feel like I'm on the wrong track with what I'm doing. Um, how, how do I pivot? What do I do? How do how do I find things that interest me? How do I find a career that I love? So that kind of was like the catalyst for you know, because if you ever read the lives of Tell, the lives of Tell is about an alien who inhabits kind of this out of shape loser's like body. Okay. Right. And then the alien can communicate with with the guy. The main character is Roland Tan, but he can't control him. So it has to be a very symbiotic relationship. So in a, in a, you know, the alien, his name is Tao. He basically becomes Roland Tan's life coach. Yeah, you know, teaches him how to like, teaches him how to fight, teaches him how to shoot a gun, teaches him how to like how how to date. You know, how to like clean up after himself. He's kind of a slob. So so there's so in many ways. Um, I always viewed Rowan Tan's journey from this like out of shape schlub becoming like this secret secret agent spy yeah. as my own writing career, going from my old corporate day job to you know becoming what I actually want to do with my life, which is becoming an, a novelist. Awesome. Um, so this book comes out, right? It comes out and you talked about like, what comes to follow, how you got into the other books and stuff like that. Were people coming to you from other places or and being like, hey, I want you to do a story about this? Or was it just like, we want you to just do a book, do whatever you want? I mean, I, I, I've been asked by anthologies. You know, I, I get that on a regular basis. But um, generally, and, and then early on, like, look, there... I, I get asked to do tie-ins quite a bit too. You know, do you want to do write a, a, an Aliens book? Do you want to write a book for Warhammer? Do you want to write, and you no, know, do you want to write a Marvel book? And I usually say no. Um, and, and and that's more of a business decision, a business decision than anything else. Okay. Like when you write tie-in, when you write for Star Wars, when you write for Marvel, you know, they will pay you an upfront cost, an upfront fee. And then they'll get you maybe one percent on the back end, but very usually there's very little back end, if not any back end. Right. So you whatever you get on the on the upfront fee is what you get, you know. But when you write for yourself and you write for your own IP, you are the owner of that IP, which means you not only get, you know, that the contract money for that series, you you keep you get all the foreign rights, yeah. you keep the audiobook rights, and and most importantly, I mean for me. 
you keep your film and television rights. And and for me, and I, like I, I write in a generally very cinematic style. Yeah. So, a lot of my IPs tend to get optioned. Everything's actually optioned right now. Yeah. I, t- I definitely want to talk about that. I was I have that on my list because I think that's uh that was fascinating when I saw all of that. It's like pretty much all of his stuff is is been optioned out. It's like that is ridiculous, <laughs> and you don't see that a lot. So that's that's super cool. I'm lucky. I'll I'll I will say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say that too, <laughs> especially considering your past. You know. Well, so you know what? Look. I was not a good actor. I'm going to admit that right now. Okay. At, at one point, the thing about acting is like, you really have to love it to get good. You really have to like dive into the craft to really make a living out of it. And at one point I thought about moving to LA early on in my acting career, but I was like, you know what? When it came, when it came to the moment where we're like, you, this, this is the go, no go point. Are we going to do this or not? And I, I remember I sat down for like two days and I was like, I really don't like acting that much. I, I fell into it because of the stunt work. Yeah. And I fell into it because in Chicago, big commercial town, it's, it, I mean, commercials are very easy money. If you can, if you can book it, it's easy money. Okay. And for the longest time I survived by being the token Asian guy. And, and I hate to admit it, but like when, when you feel, especially back in the early two thousands, you know, when diversity was not a real big thing. Yeah. When you film a commercial back then, you know, you want the, token white guy the token black guy token asian guy token fat guy you know it's like they want to kind of fill these categories so that it feels like we're being inclusive so and like they're like you know if every other asian actor is like my parents they didn't want you to be an actor so there weren't that many of us there weren't that many asian dudes there were like five dudes that we all fought for the same roles yeah yeah that's gotta be rough no no it's great (laughs) (laughs) you don't understand Okay. There are a lot of good okay, there are a lot of good actors out there and the, most of them are white just because of, of the way you know there's just you know whatever. Yeah. So if I had to compete against all those guys, I would get crushed. Okay. So in this way it benefited me being that token, you know. Yeah. I, and because the truth is I wasn't a great actor. Okay. It, it takes a lot it takes a lot to be able to say that about oneself as well you know about any any career at all so when there's somebody's like it is what it is i know but hey that's i mean it's been 25 years what am i <laughs> right <laughs> let's talk about Cassandra Clare. you did some work with her i did how did the how did the two of you meet up did you know each other or did somebody else put you two together how did that come about that story because and also on top of that for those that don't know like she was already a number one New York Times bestselling author, you know, before you two started to work out. So how did that, how did you two get fit together? Where were you on the standings when that started and how did you feel about it? So, uh, so it all kind of started back in 2012. Um, there's a bunch of literary conventions I was, I was attending and I just happened to go to a convention called World Fantasy in Brighton that year, which is in the UK. And I met a woman named Holly Black, and we just became really good friends. And we, you know, we we hung out, we got, we got drunk, we drank, you know, we partied that that night. And then um, three years later, when uh, Cassie's publisher wanted to publish uh, a series on one one of her like most uh, popular characters, this uh, 
half Asian warlock named Magnus Spain. Um, they wanted somebody who kind of you know who who could write humor, who had a background that would kind of work with the character, and my name came on the shortlist. So at that time, Cassie didn't really know who I was, okay. but she's best friends with Holly Black. Okay. So um, Holly went to bat for me. She was like, you know, I know West. He can do this project. He'll be great for it. And then you know, Cassie read my books after that and said, okay, this guy can. This guy gets it. He can do it. And uh, let's go. Nice. How did they so, approach I mean, you? Did they just come to you? Did Holly come to you or? Everything's done through your, you know, through the publisher, yeah, to the yeah. agent. It's, it's all on, it's all on channels above my pay grade. Right above your pay grade. It's all, about, it's all <laughs> everything's above my pay grade. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Did you know of her before, beforehand? Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, I, I read her books. I was a huge fan. You know, it's like, but the Shadow Hunter books. I mean, there are, they, they were the fuck on the forefront of this, this huge YA explosion, and yeah. like you know. There, there's so many things in that, that it's such a huge fascinating world the characters the history the the family family like family trees are 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 so complex and interesting that like you can there's so many stories you can kind of like mine from those just because it's such a vast world and you know and the more books cassie wrote the just just the more cool things you could do with it. it it was in many ways a dream project i learned so much from working on that project yeah. you know anything from like writing romance to writing sex scenes to just like showing how good character not character relationships can kind of like elevate a story. Yeah, for sure. How did you, what was the process between you guys? Was it like you take a chapter, she takes a chapter or like she just writes it until she needs you and then says, Hey, can you do this? How, how did that work? It's different for everybody that teams up like that. Right. I mean, there was no set process. So there's some stuff, things I wrote, some things she wrote, some things we collaborated on. Um, like there were, um, there were some characters that I created specifically you know, um, the 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 Shinyan character is 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 my creation, who I actually named after after my wife. That's her Korean name. Um, and then like in in the sequel, um, the Lost Book of the White, the world is set in Shanghai, or the the story is set in Shanghai. And so I had a lot to do with kind of like get, you know, kind of plotting out that narrative there. And you know, um, the 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 Chinese shadow hunter Kai Tian, he does a rope dart. You know, and like I, I, I was the one I wanted to give him a rope dart as his weapon. So, you know, that was kind of like my thing there. So, I mean, definitely at the end of the day, I think, you no, know, we didn't have set assigned roles. Cassie obviously made sure the flavor of the, and the, and the motivations and the style of the characters are, are, you know, are the shadow hunter voices. But, you know, there was, it was a, it was a very organic process. Nice. Do you guys plan on doing more works together down the road? I'm not sure. Um, so I mean, right now, Cassie has Cassie and I both have books coming out tomorrow. So she is yeah. working on Swordcatcher. That's coming out tomorrow. That's I'm really excited about that. You know, um, after I did the Cassie books, the first two Cassie books, and then did the Walking Dead book, I was, you know, was, I think it was like t early 2019. I was like, you know what? I have to get back to doing my own thing. You know, yeah. I've had the idea for the war saga which is the series for the art of prophecy back in like 2015 and yeah. at the time i was like i didn't think i was ready for it um, I, I was writing science fiction not fantasy and um that idea just kind of sat in my head for four or five years just simmered and kind of like yeah. grew on its own until finally after uh, i cleared out my plate i was like okay now i am ready to write you know the war saga 
And then, so I mean, I like doing my own things. I think, you know, there are advantages to writing tie-in, but when you, writing your own thing, it's just like, it's yours. You are the god of this universe, you know? Yeah. Do you do outlines or do you kind of see your pants it? How, how, what's your process like when you're putting together a book like this, this one? I am a very heavy out, outliner and it, it is hard to, to pants, you know, a 250,000 word book. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be done. I, I know people who do it, but it, it is hard because if you're, especially if you're writing multiple point of views, you kind of have to like, it's, it's, I always consider writing big books, like putting together a puzzle. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, I write, you know, I usually have a pretty significant outline before I start writing, or at least early on I did. Now things are a little bit more different. Um, I'm a big believer in, um, in giving my characters free will. I want them to make choices on their own. And, and there are, there are many times when I have an outline plotted out where I want to say, I want this character to go through this door, but he's staying at the door and he's like, I don't want to go in. I just don't want to do it. I'm going to go get some ice cream, whatever. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to go watch a movie. And like part of me is like, you got to go through the door. He doesn't want to do it. And yeah, I can make him go through the door. I am God. I can make him go through the door, but there's a reason why he doesn't want to go through the door. Okay. And for me to force him through the door doesn't feel authentic. doesn't feel honest. Yeah. And, and so then part of it is this, then you go back and say, okay, what, why don't, why does he want to go through the door? What happened throughout this character that makes him not want to go through the door? Or maybe this door is, is the wrong thing. Maybe, maybe you're trying to play God, but you're not, you know, now that your character has experienced all these things leading up to this point, he has an honest, instinctive reason to not go through that door. And at this point, especially these days, I, I kind of want to honor that, you know? You don't want to go through the door? Fine, fuck it. You don't have to go through the door. However, instead of, you know, so instead of trying to retcon everything, what I do now is I just, um, I just re-outline. I re-outline and see if I can get back to where I needed him to go. Or I just go a whole different direction. Because as long as the decision-making process for my characters feels honest to me, then I know she's feel honest to the reader. Yeah. And what happens is now when I write a big, big book, by the time I finish the whole book, I'm on like outline version, like 9.5 or okay. 9.8. So I'm always re-outlining to the point where these days now, instead of outlining the entire damn book, I'll outline like an act or a third of it. That way, I'm, <laughs> I don't have to like redo all this work every yeah. single time. So I'll get to this point. And, and this allows me as the writer to, to still discover things. You know, yeah. one of the cool things about pantsing is that you're always discovering new things. Um, I don't, I don't pre-plot my worlds. Like I don't do world building. Like I don't sit down for like two months ahead of time and be like, all right, let's crap this world out. Yeah. For me, I like to sit down and kind of like, almost like playing a first, like, like a, like a role-playing game. I'm discovering the world as my character moves around, right. you know, and then I see cool things that, that they see. And then I kind of like, retcon that saying you know since people don't exist in a universe in isolation how does what they see affect them culturally physically you know if if they're standing if they live in a moon colony and you know every time they jump they jump 15 feet or whatever how does that affect how they grow up how right. does that affect the games they play so there's there's all these cool things you can do if you let yourself discover these things instead of creating a world first and then plopping your guys into it. 
what was world building like for your your art of prophecy series was that an easy easy thing to do for you that's fun that's the funnest part like like i i don't get me wrong i get why people love world building world building is fun um so it's like you know like the, the, the only idea i really had for the art of prophecy in terms of like world building you know early on was like the idea of the grassy you know having this this huge jungle of like of of land you know, floating on this ocean and then so the the, the land moves all the no all the, the weeds are three stories are three stories tall right. and it's just the idea which it's kind of grabbed me and i'm like well if that is the case how do people live in there how do they travel what yeah. do they eat what happens if they fall into what if they fall into a pond what happens then you know so so that's so that was the only real like you know idea i started out with that i really wanted to use and everything else became uh, like a discovery process um one thing i did do before i started writing was i played a lot of um total war romance of the three kingdoms okay that kind of that kind of set my my mind for that for the whole like you know secondary world you know yeah uh, china so that that, that were like my, were my, my two things that kind of helped me build things out you want to tell our audience a little bit about what the art of prophecy, what the what the story concept is of it? All right. So um I suck at hand selling, so it's I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna ramble a little bit, but um that's hey, I love so, rambling. I love the rambling. art of prophecy basically uh, um five hundred years ago there was this huge prophecy about you know about how uh, a chosen one chosen one will rise and and defeat this evil con and will save the world. Okay. Okay. Very, very like straightforward chosen one kind of prophecy and uh, um you know 20 years ago they find this chosen one this babe this baby who they will now raise to become this great hero so um the the five dukes of this the five um the five uh yeah duchies of, of this world come together and finally have peace and they raise this guy put all the resources into like raising this kid who will save them and then when the story starts uh there's a grandmaster named ling tai shi who will kind of She's checking up on this kid, seeing how he's doing. And she goes to make sure that, you know, he's, his training is going well. He's going to be a great martial artist or great war artist, as they call him. And she discovers that he sucks. He's spoiled. He doesn't know how to fight very well. He's been, he's been you know, handled with kid gloves. So he's right. kind of soft and he's weak and he's whiny, all these things. So she's like, we're screwed. So she decides to take over his training. Okay. And become his new master because she's one of the greatest you know, war artists of her generation. At the same time, this great eternal Khan, this this, this god king of you know, that that Jin, the main the, the kid is supposed to kill, gets naked and drunk, and, he, and some like foot soldier stabs him into the gut and he dies. <laughs> okay. So, so, so Plot right twist. there then. What? Plot twist. That's on chapter three. So the, that's on chapter three. So the, <laughs> I'm not giving any real right, spoilers right, right. here. So the so the Khan's dead. The prophecy now, which they had an entire religion built around around this thing, is basically broken. You know? It's it's like what if you find proof that like, you know, like Jesus is like, you know, like never existed or or whatever. But it basically right. what do you do with with the land, with the people, with the culture, if everything you've known about it that you kind of worked together for has been proven to be a lie? Yeah. So so from that point on. You know, the five dukes of this kingdom are like, shoot, man, we've been spending 12% of our GDP every year on this kid. And what are we good for it? You know, and then they're like, wait a minute, 
who's going to get him now? Because he's still a political powerhouse. He's 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 a liability now, right. but he's still you know the prophesied hero of the TND. So they try to kill him. They're like, we're going to just we're going we're to cut our losses and kill him. So at that point, Taishi, who's kind of you know, grown attached to the kid, saves him, and they go on the run. Okay. That kind of be, that, that's the setup for the story. Is All like, right. what happens when prophecy is broken? What happens politically, economically? You know, yeah. To, to and also the, and at the same time, you know, the um, the art of prophecy follows um, three women, um, and one of them is is uh, this. Uh, She's a shadow kill. Uh, not sorry. Um, she, she, she's a viper strike from from the from the grass sea. She's one of the, the the Mongolian people who were just subjugated by by like you know, Jin's people. So she's on the other side of the spectrum, you know, trying to fulfill her destiny. And her destiny after her con that you know the, that God King died is to die. She is supposed to go, like basically kill herself. Wow. And then, but then no, but then she was like, my people are enslaved. My sister, my my sister is like missing. I'm gonna go find her. Screw this. So there's this, there's there's this chain reaction of things that happen because what every what everybody's expectations are for prophecy, no, is not flipped on its head. That's awesome. That's super cool. And the next book comes out tomorrow. Book two, everybody comes out tomorrow. So you definitely want to check that out. Book Art one is called Destiny. The Art of Prophecy, and the second book is The Art of Destiny. Correct. That's correct. And that'll be. Come out tomorrow, October 10th. So if you're listening to this podcast, uh, it would be today. Because <laughs> we're recording it the day before. Oh, so Excellent. So there you go. So how much um, how much of your, your martial arts background and stuff goes into this story? Is it comparable to some of your previous works? Is there a lot of like, let's let's get combat in there? Obviously, you talked about he's being trained and stuff like that. I mean, it's it's a lot. Yeah. Um. Like, uh, there's there 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 are people who there's just been people who be like, you know, I don't understand how your magic system works. Right. I don't understand this whole thing about Jing and and how like you create magic out you know, from your body. And if I if I was to take it a step back, I'd be like, honestly, my entire magic system is based off of Tai Chi. The yeah. idea of Tai Chi, the idea of Fa Jing. Um. Uh. Did, did you do you ever play any sports? Yes. When you were a kid, yes. what did you play? Uh, I would do track and field. I did uh, like soccer. I did. I did all kinds of stuff. I also grew okay. up. I did professional wrestling for a number of years as well. So. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, okay. So, as, as a professional wrestler, okay, you, and basically, you, you you are you're using integrated body movements. Mm-hmm. So when you pounce, your whole body is pouncing. Okay. When a tiger pounces, they, their whole body is basically lunging together, right? Yeah. When you swing a baseball bat. You don't swing a baseball bat with your arms. You swing right. it with almost your feet. Yeah, your whole your body legs, is into that swing, yeah, right? Your legs, your feet, your hips, yeah. Everything, right? And then your, your, your feet are almost like spearing the ground when, when you make that swing. Because that's what that kinetic energy moving from the ground through your body into the bat. Mm-hmm. That's what Tai Chi is. Like, like right. all that stuff they do with Tai Chi, the slow movements of the forms, all they're doing is training you how to move kinetic energy from one end of the body to the, to the other one. Okay, Bruce Lee's one inch punch. All that is is relax your body, and at the very at the exact same time, you swing that baseball bat, the whole body kind of tightens and hardens, yeah. and that generates the power. That's Jing. And then all I do is take that concept 
and turn it into a magical world like Wuxia, where like suddenly you are you can fly with it, you can punch through walls, you can you know do all these magical things with it yeah. because suddenly that power that you have can now turn into some kind of like physical magic, which is awesome. And for those that don't know, the book series is kind of a high fantasy sort of world, right? Yes. Nice. Nice. I, those are some of my favorite types of books, by the way. <laughs> a lot of our a lot of our audience loves that kind of stuff, so I can't imagine uh, them not going and picking up the new book and the old one and, and your other stuff as well. So that's well, thank you. Awesome. Hopefully, hopefully they'll go and pick that up. You have some. Um, you talked about you know getting getting optioned for stuff. Can you talk about any of that for any of your stuff? Not really, to be honest. Okay. Um, from, from a very high level. Oh, so the thing about options is you, you always want to be like, you want to be careful how, what you say. You're allowed to make certain announcements. Um, and I got in trouble once. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't say like, something if you're not supposed no, no, no. to. I, you can I, say, I got in trouble once a long, a long time ago when, um, this, this is like 10 years ago. I'm pretty sure no one's going to be mad at me now, but, okay. um, like when, um, like, you no, know, uh, one of my books, Time Salvager was, uh, optioned by Michael Bay. Yes. And this is back during when Transformers was huge. It's like, like right. 2015. The Transformers were all over the place. So that was kind of a big deal. And they actually made their own announcement. The deadline had the announcement saying, you know, Wesley Chu's Time Salvager, optioned by Michael Bay. So that was public news. All I did was say, hey, guys, I'm really excited. You know, blah, blah, blah. This is going to be awesome. The team is great. And all I did was like a blog post about that back when blogging was a thing. Yeah, yeah. I got in so much trouble, man. It's just, and, and, and part of it is just like, you know, they, they want you, they want to kind of like manage how the information gets put out. Right. Especially when there's you no know, big talent attached to it. So, um, generally there's, a, there's a lot of option news that you're allowed to make that, um, you just got to be careful about. Yeah. So right now, all of my properties are kind of are in development at, at some level. Excellent. You know, Excellent. With, with, with different, you know, studios different and everything. People, and it's, it's just, it's going through, the, it's going through the process. Do you, you know, I'm not going to get any specific, but do you get any, uh, have you made it so you have any like input? Cause I know sometimes other authors, they're like, I'm on site or, you know, they're, you know, the, the new, uh, the new Percy Jackson, like he's there you know, during the, right. during the filming and has kind of hands on, are you going to try to do any of that? Do you want anything to do that? Or are you just like, Nope, I trust you guys to do whatever. It's a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, the thing is, the thing about options is like, and you know, this is something I learned along the ways is that, you know, as, as the source, I have, I'm the ultimate, you know, knowledge base for, for this IP. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that, once it's been optioned and they have a showrunner, they have a director, they have a screenwriter writing something, it is now a shared world. Yeah. Okay. And what works in my head, what works on, on in long form prose on a book, isn't always going to work on the big screen or TV or anything else. Yeah. And they have limitations that I don't have as a writer. I can I can blow up ten billion dollars worth of stuff on on the page, and it doesn't matter. But they gotta they gotta manage that. Right. They have to be able to manage what they put on screen because that stuff is expensive. Yeah. So there's there's that aspect of it, but there's also the aspect of like, um, it's a different medium. So I I don't know what I don't know, and I don't know what works. And there are so many rules that I might have been privy to. So 
when I approach working with somebody else, um, I don't just view it as like, okay, who can, who can give me the most money? Who can do whatever? It's, you know, I'm specifically these days now look at the team. Yeah. I go, you know, who, who are, who, you know, who's the producer, who's the showrunner, who this director they're going to bring on board. And then, um, I try to be a good resource. Okay. Because if somebody wants to cut you out from, from that, once they option it, they have control over many aspects of it. If they want to cut you out, they can. Yeah. That's unless you're so big, you know, that you're like, I will, you cannot, you cannot cut me out. They can do that from a contractual standpoint. Right. So my thing has always been, I want to be a good resource. Um, for, so the, the showrunner for like, you know, the war saga, he, him, him, we're friends. We've, be, we've become friends and we work to work together sometimes. And there would be days where he would call me and he's like, well, I'm trying to work through this idea. What do you think about this angle? What do you think about this character? How, how would they, you know, how would they interact if we did, did it this way? Right. And then I'd be like, you know, and, and things like some of his ideas are awesome. Some yeah. of his ideas are much better than what I could have come up with. So we collaborate. We kind of like we, we work as a team, you know. Yeah. And there's been times where he calls me and he's all pissed off because he's like, they're going to do this. And I'm not happy about this. So what do you think about that? And I'd be like, OK, hold up. Yeah. <laughs> hold up. Let's take a step back and let's let's see what let's you know. What are the consequences of this? How yeah, do we just think about it? it. And what, what are the benefits of it? You know, so it's it's been cool that way, because once you have that kind of relationship, I actually have more can provide more feedback because they're more receptive to listening to it. You know, so yeah. I, I like I like kind of having like using like soft gloves. Yeah. Do you have that kind of same um, interaction with like your audiobook narrators? Mm, well, So my, the, I, I'm, I've been fairly lucky with my partnerships uh, in, in, in my publishing career. So uh, right now for Art of Prophecy, Natalie Nottis is the, uh, is the narrator. She's amazing. She's just, I mean, we, we won a earphone award for it. Yeah. We were nominated for an audio award, which is like, you know, the audiobook book version of the yeah. Emmys. Yeah. And uh, when we were choosing audiobook narrators, um, she she. I pushed for her really, really hard. And part of it was because like, you know, the way she works, she works in the middle of the night. She doesn't like having a producer with her because, you know, of, of the way she works. And you know, the, 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 the publisher wanted a, a, a producer with her. So I, I really had to push to kind of like get her, you know, to get her because I knew she'd be great for the job. Right. You know, so we've become friends since. That's great. And, you know, obviously she'll send me like, she'd be like, Wes, how do you say this? You know, or like this, this, this name is impronounceable. And I'd be like, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't put a lot of stock in names sometimes. So like sometimes when I have a minor character, I just be like, his name is like, I don't know, roll my fist on the keyboard and see what happens. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> That's so, great. So, so like, you know, yeah. So it's one of those things where like, yes, I, I don't make her life easy, but but you know, again, it's it's a partnership thing. Um, I, I have a good relationship with with the cover artist Tran Nguyen. I think okay. she did an amazing job. Um, she heard, uh, she they solicited feedback from me. They listened to me, and like so, like I'm I'm uh, I would say I'm I'm friends with Tran. You know, I'm friends with Natalie. I'm I'm friends with most of the major you know players in to help produce my work, yeah. and, it, and it's been great that way. That's amazing. That's great. I love hearing that because you never know. Sometimes it's like no, we don't talk to them or. I know, you know, 
20 years ago, a lot of authors were like, no, that you're not allowed to talk to the audiobook narrator and the audiobook narrator is not allowed to talk to the author. Um, but I, I love hearing it that now that people, they work together, they know, get to know each other. They ask instead of like, I go to this person, that person goes to this person and that person goes to the author. Uh, I mean, that's still, that's still often the case. And, and that's more to protect them than anybody else. Cause, cause authors, we're, we're, we're a little, we're an anxious bunch, you know? Like the last thing a publisher wants is an author to get all like pissy about like, oh, you know, you said my the narrator said my this character's name wrong, blah, 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 blah. And like yelling at the, at the narrator, you don't want that, you know? Yeah. So so it has to come from a like a really strong position of like mutual respect between the author yeah. and the talent, you know? So and, and I've, so I worked hard for that because otherwise there, there's been times where like early in my career, when I first got the cover for The Lives of Tao, I hated it. It was this big yellow book that black silhouettes. And I was like, you know, oh, this sucks. I want art. I want I want a beautiful portrait, you know, of, of, of that I can like frame on my wall. Right. I don't want graphic design. I want art. And that was one of the first lessons I learned in publishing is that I don't know what I don't know. And my opinion about a lot of things is bad. Right. You know, my my taste for like cover art is bad. Because here's what happened is like the lives of Tao blew up. It sold a ton of copies. And a part, a large part of it was probably because it was such a original cover art. It was yellow, it was bright, and just kind of popped out on the bookshelf. Yeah. So, so that was like a brilliant marketing decision. But back then, I didn't know about yeah, it. I, I just didn't that. know. I just wanted art. So like, you know, sometimes there's something to be said about having subject matter experts you know, kind of help drive certain aspects of it. Yeah. For sure. Production. Yeah. Upcoming events. Like we said, Art of Destiny is out October 10th, which for us is tomorrow. For those listening to the podcast is today. That's air quotes for people that are watching. Uh, you're going to be at the, on the Storycraft Cafe podcast tomorrow, correct? We, we record tomorrow. I don't think it's live, so I don't know when it's coming out, but yeah. Okay. That's tomorrow. So we'll be doing stuff recording that, and then whenever that comes out is when, when it comes out. So go check out Storycraft Cafe. Uh, you'll be at New York Comic Con. New York Comic Con. That's the Javits. Are you going to be doing any panels at New York Comic Con, or you I, just have a booth? Or So um, I'm going there with Penguin Random House. We will. I'm doing, I think, one or two panels, and I have maybe four or five signings. And uh, we're giving away copies of The Art of Prophecy. So if any, any any listener wants a copy and you're attending New York Comic Con, please come and get a ticket and we're giving out copies. Awesome. Uh, Game Hole Con. You're going to be at Game Hole Con as well? Back to the Midwest. Back in the back, Midwest. Back to Madison. By the way, Madison is one of my favorite towns. Is it a town or a city? Madison's a city, yeah. Madison it is a is city, the, right? It's yeah. the capital I, I, of Wisconsin. I will, get, I will give them that, yeah. It's one of my favorite cities in, in the country. It's just really nice. Um, Minneapolis and Madison are like just like really delightful places. I know I left hop, skip, and a jump from Minneapolis right here. And uh, Dragon Steel is another. You have to tell tell them about that because that one's not super well known, at least not as far as I'm concerned. My I don't think my audience because I didn't know what it was until you mentioned it. So Dragon Steel is Brandon Sanderson's convention that he has at Salt Lake City every year. So they've had it for a few years now. It is very um, Dragon Steel is the name of Brandon's company. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a very Brandon-centric convention, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's also where a lot of fantasy fans kind of congregate, you know, like, and so um, a lot of my fantasy author friends are going to meet up there where um, I'm actually going to have a table there this year. It's going to be my very first time exhibiting. So 
Let's see how that goes. Yeah, you'll be you'll be great. You'll be great. It'll be just like today. You'll be just today, like today. Yeah. Uh, people can find you at wesleychua.com. That's W-E-S-L-E-Y. Chew. Do not put a T in there like I almost did about 30 times with autocorrect. Do not it is not C H E W. In fact, in <laughs> fact, now I'm embarrassed because I say that, and right on the screen, right <laughs> on the screen, that that never happened. Edit that in post. Not really. I mean, <laughs> if if it, if it makes you feel better, I, so I actually picked my name, uh, my my I think sophomore, fresh freshman or sophomore year in high school, because I have a I have a Taiwanese name and no one can pronounce it, and not only that, my Taiwanese name has a hyphen in the middle. So oh. I don't know if you if anybody remembers what a scantron is. Yeah. Yeah. Am I, da- I, am I dating I myself? Me, but I'm, yeah. No, you're dating me too, so okay. so you can't do a dash on a scantron. No. So I I got so, so many zeros on my tests back in the day, because you were like, I put my you no, know, I put the dash in and the scantron would not read it and like, you know, the whole thing is spit out. Yeah. So so I, I picked Wesley at one point, and in hindsight, because The Princess Bride was my favorite movie, I probably should have had a T there. <laughs> As well, you I, do. I, I, my apologies. I caught it everywhere else except for the price that is super most important, and that's right on the live stream screen. And I'm I'm now feeling a bit embarrassed. So, uh, <laughs> but WesleyChu.com. They can find you on Twitter at Wes underscore Chu. That's correct. correct. Instagram at Wesley Chu One, the number one, I believe. That sounds correct. Yes. Um, any 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 other locations you want to talk about where people can find you? I mean, the the honestly, the best way to get a hold of me is on Facebook. Just look at Wesley Chu. I believe you know there's four or five other Wesley Chus out there in the world. One of these is I have to defeat them all. Right. Take the crown. <laughs> take take the Wesley Chu crown. Um, and I have some presence on Blue Sky and. As much as I I want to quit Twitter or X or, or shitter or whatever it's called these days, um, I still have a significant presence on Twitter. So we'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to get to the live stream Q&As here in a second. So if you have questions for Wesley Chu, go ahead and throw them in the chat. We will get to those as well as any comments that you guys have all made throughout the show. Uh, but first, listeners, we have some great guests coming up. I'm going to go through them. Fairly quickly, we're going to have urban fantasy author Heather Harris is going to be joining us on October 23rd. We're also going to have Diana Jones, award-winning RPG designer Connor Alexander is going to be joining us November 6th. New York Times best-selling author Michael Whitworth is going to be joining us November 20th. So you don't want to miss any of these episodes. So please follow, subscribe, rate, review, push all of the buttons on all of the medias. It helps us and helps our guests. So excellent for Wesley Chu, I am Nick. Thank you so much for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs>